Hello and welcome to another episode of Left Inside, a weekly podcast offering a critical look at news, politics and culture from the left. Uh, I'm Kean Prendival, this week's host, and we're back this week with a, a full panel um, after a special bonus interview last week with Whitney Kahn from the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, the, Whitney and Dermid spoke last week about the Black Lives Matter uprising in the United States of America. Make sure to check that out uh, um, if you've been following the crazy scenes going on there and the inspiring uh, uprising we're seeing. But but this week, uh, uh, I'm joined by Jesse Nikelik. Hello. Uh, um, and first-time panellist and my co-host on the Bottom Dog podcast, uh, April Scully. Hi. And this week, we'll be discussing uh, Normal People, uh, the hit TV show, and the books, uh, the book by uh, Sally Rooney. Um, but we hit the big time today, and th- this week we've got a, a special guest interview with uh, the director of the TV show Normal People, uh, Lenny Abramson, who was interviewed uh, earlier this week by Paul Murphy. So we'll we'll jump right into the interview now, um, and then we'll discuss it afterwards. Okay, thanks a million, uh, Lenny Abramson, for joining us on our podcast. Um, people will know Lenny probably mostly at the moment as director of Normal People, um, but also Lenny is director of a whole bunch of good films like Adam and Paul, uh, The Room, uh, and more good films that I can't remember right now. But you might, uh, you, you might, you might tell us which other good ones to watch. There's a whole bunch of them: um, Garage, um, What Richard Did, um, Frank, um, and then also A Little Stranger, which I made with Donald Gleeson about two years ago which uh sort of died without a trace oh. but but it's one of my favorites so okay that's a recommendation then i haven't seen that i presume it's strange that you have this hit show happening during lockdown i mean if it wasn't lockdown would you be traveling the world promoting the show and instead you're doing it on zoom or yeah and i mean that has its kind of pluses and minuses you know that, that we've only re- barely finished the show before lockdown started in fact we did the okay. last little bits of um post-production kind of remotely you know which was which i've never done before but it worked all right we, we were very close to not being able to finish um so because of that i kind of the first two or three weeks of lockdown i was busy with that and then there was a brief gap and i was doing some writing which was nice and and the rhythm is not that different to the rhythm i quite like which is to potter around and think about things and write a bit and you know that that's sort of my natural thing but and then the show was released and the sort of all hell broke loose. And then it, it's been, it was three, four weeks nearly of doing kind of constant press um, from this room. And I would, otherwise we would, we were going to, the show was going to get um, kind of given a platform for release at Tribeca in New York. Okay. There would have been other events. And I'm not, I mean, I don't miss the travel massively, but I do miss seeing the people that we did it with. That's the hardest part of it. Not being able to celebrate. Yeah, yeah okay. And that means you, you haven't had some celebration with the, the crew and everybody? No, um, we haven't. We've, um, like, we've had a couple of Zoom drinks with... It's not the same, is it? Not the same. Stupid backgrounds and... Yeah. I mean, what's amazing is how much work you can do um, at home, you know, and, and I will definitely be thinking more about travel and... Yeah, whether it's necessary. Totally. And three out of four times it's not necessary, I think. Um, but yeah, I miss the social dimension of it and that sense of finishing something and you know saying goodbye to it but but otherwise it's been okay cool and um why do you think that normal people is such a success i mean i i really think it's excellent but like there are excellent shows many times that don't catch up why now this normal people i mean if i can answer that it would be sort of the ultimate you know what an analysis that would be because you could apply it again Uh i mean i think there's like it's they're complex reasons probably some of it's got to do with lockdown which is mm-hmm. i don't know there's a sort of openness to things it's a it's a it, it, any jolt to habit is mm-hmm. a kind of uh, you know allows you to think yeah. more openly about things i mean habit is a dulling thing so i think people are vulnerable in particular ways or the the themes in the show of intimacy and closeness and Th- those are things which are meaningful in this situation. I think that's got something to do with it. People are really watching telly. I mean, the really mm. basic fact. Um, and then, I don't know, maybe uh, somebody was saying it's quite naturalistically done um, as a show. Expl- explain naturalistic to me. I'm not a, 
a buff. So a buff. What, what I mean by that is it, it's low key in its execution, you know. Yeah, okay. People talk more or less as they talk. It's still, you know, there's still a lot of work into making it dramatic and compelling, but it feels sort of close-ish in some ways to real life in places. Okay. And if you, and sort of people, people don't announce their, dramatic intentions it's buried in the dialogue just like you know when you encounter somebody in the world um and it doesn't spoon feed you and it's i suppose it, it's more maybe in tone a bit more like what you would find in an art house film than in a kind of mainstream television show and yeah. what's i thought my feeling about that was that we would have a smallish audience really yeah i did i thought i thought there's so everything on telly is so much crash buying wallop and it's so glossy and particularly stuff about young people and sex tends to be kind mm-hmm. of sensationalized or problematized you know yeah. uh like it's all drugs and meaningless sex and it's all you know it's this kind of way of, of upping the ante emotionally by preying on kind of um the sensational dimension of things and i thought maybe people were just going to go oh, this is a bit normal and i'll just pass on to something else but so i was really heartened by how strong a reaction it has um and then the other things are just Daisy and Paul are brilliant. The two actors are great. It's a love story fundamentally. And people, you know, there's very little that's as compelling as whether two people will find each other or not. I mean, that's like yeah, yeah. everybody's known that from the history of storytelling. So, so you, you leave us hanging at the end with that one. But Jess, my partner, was like, ah, no, they're definitely together. And I was like, no, I don't think they are. I'm afraid they really don't think they are. Well, there's, there's a thing about, um, we were talking about it. I'd love to, there's there's no sort of season two or anything like that, but I would love maybe in five or 10 years to go back and see where they are. So, you know, because they're great characters. Definitely be a big audience for that. I mean, one of the things that I think is striking is that um, it isn't a show that like hits you over the head with politics, you know? And I have to say, I, I'm someone who's intensely political, but after a long day of doing politics, I often don't want to go home and watch something that's like banging me over the head with politics. But it's it's like with Sally Rooney's writing that like there's politics there. I mean, the social structure, class, patriarchy, etc. It it like bears down on these two people's personal lives in such a heavy way, and that's something that obviously it features in. In, in maybe a more explicit way or kind of a more dramatic way in Room, but also in other stuff that you have done. Is is that like something you're you're going for? Obviously, there's like a crossover between your work there and Sally Rooney's work there as well. I mean, I've always parasited on other people's work as well as sort of developing my own and mm-hmm. find my themes and kind of, you know, like worlds to operate in in all sorts of ways. But yeah, it is something I've always been interested in. I mean, I've always been interested in politics and I'm always... Um, interested in that intersection of the political and the kind of internal, you know, and like what what structures, social structures do to people in ways that they're not even aware of and how they ha- how they yeah. form people's lives. So, and Sally's very political in a quiet sort of way in that, you know, both of us would be on the left and both of us would have similar views about, um, you know, political structures and, and what, what would be desirable and what isn't. And, but I think it's really important. It's really, there are, there is a place for polemics. You know, you can make something which is absolutely. Yeah, the Ken Loach style. Like. Totally. And there are times where, where you also want to, you know, rally people. And I think those things are really valid. But I think in another way, somehow you can get to people in a more kind of, in a deeper way, actually, sometimes if you just make that part of the world, but don't kind of lean into it too much. I mean, it's funny, I'm working on a project which is, um, set in the States and it's about race and, and it's about masculinity. It's about all sorts of things. It's also probably impossible to make at the moment given mm-hmm. the pandemic and what's happening in the States generally. Yeah, yeah. But um, but it's about a, a young black man who comes to the States from uh, British or the American Virgin Islands in the 60s, early, uh, late 50s actually, as, he, as a sort of young teenager. Um, and uh, he's gay and he's also very athletic and he ends up being a world champion. It's a true story. He ends up as a champion boxer, but living this double life. Um, and it's about, it's really about how he has internalized the view of him. Mm-hmm. I suppose that that's a political, that's an idea that goes right through politics, which is that there's a degree to which the the political or the kind of the class structure forms the person as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we'd probably have different... I mean, it's hard to know. I'd be love to talk to you about politics sometime because there are very... 
you know, that's a complex kind of territory. Um, uh, and I do believe in human nature in that I think that there are things which transcend that, you know, we can't completely remake ourselves by remaking society. But um, yeah, so I've always been interested in those things. And in films like Adam and Paul and, and Garage, they're all films about how people fit or don't fit into the society around them and what that means for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things, obviously the thing that has definitely gotten the most commentary and most attention with Joe Duffy and everything else is the sex. Um, what struck me in watching, particularly the first sex scene, is just like, wow, here's a model of consent, you know, and it being an ongoing process and so on. And like Connell is a, you know, he's a very imperfect character, particularly at the start. And in many respects, that relationship is an abusive relationship. But at the same time, on the consent question, he's like really excellent, you know? He gets an A plus. Yeah, on that. He really fails on the other stuff. I mean, it's it's there in the book, but it's also something we wanted to really... Uh, emphasize, but we, uh, the challenge I think was to emphasize it in a way that didn't feel like we were just bolting it on to be um, responsible. You know, it, it had to feel like it was. And I think he's an interesting character because you're right. There is a degree to which, he, uh, like, there's an abusive dimension to how he is emotionally with her. But he's also like you learn about him. He's kind of struggling with his own stuff. And um, but what he's trying to do all the time is he <laughs> likes he's trying to be decent. Yeah. Um, and um, which is always a good place to be with a character, you know, uh, otherwise you end up with monsters mm-hmm. and they're kind of like not that interesting and probably pretty rare. Um, but but yeah, that thing of trying to do it, though, in a way which felt like it was integral to the scene and it could still be part of the intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that's what's that's what's great about it. And that's what it is precisely giving people a model of how this can be done. Because, you know, sometimes like right wing people try to suggest, oh, this is ridiculous. Is anyone ever actually going to ask about consent? But of course, actually, they are. But but there's more in that scene and throughout the show than there is in what kids get in in school and sex education. Like, and that's what like we were trying to bring in this bill to say that we shouldn't have a cord coming in this Catholic marriage agency. You know, absolutely. I mean, that stuff's terrifying. You know, my kids are in um, Educate Together school, which is good because it's non-denominational. And I've been involved with the movement trying to raise money and stuff. Um, But part of the thing I always think about with this is like, I'd like the kids to watch this. You know, they're too young, like they're 12 and nine. But when they're a little bit older, I'd love them to watch it. It's sort of empowering for both Mm -hmm. the the guys and the, the girls to be able to think about this as a sort of normal thing. I mean, you don't go, you wouldn't go up and take somebody's cigarette lighter without yeah. asking them, yeah. you know. Oh, it's just natural. I, that'd be so weird to ask them for their cigarette lighter. You just take it, you know? I yeah, mean, I mean, what, what, what are you afraid of, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it is that idea, I suppose, also that there's something not, I mean, the insidious aspect of it is that to ask for consent mm-hmm. um, is non-masculine, you know, that, which is the whole, which is so interesting that the, the right now, or the version of the right that we've got or parts of it are so obsessed with these kinds of, you know, words like cuck and, and soy boy and all this kind mm, of like, true. it's a, it sort of feels like a, a last gasp of a certain very particular idea of what a, a man is, you know? Yeah. Well, that's what one of the things that's really good about Connell is exactly his, that he's not that. And you can see that tension as well, that like he is one of the lads and that's what kind of, does create negative pressure on him to behave badly and is what adds the abusive elements to the relationship, although he, he also has to take responsibility. But at the same time, he also like is capable of having a mature relationship and like not seeing that, that masculinity is about, you know, being sexist basically or Yeah. It was interesting. I saw there was some like somebody shared with me and I was I try not to watch this stuff, but it was uh, one of the kind of alt right um YouTubers here did a whole analysis of the scene in episode four uh, where um, Connell goes into the debating society and talks about giving a platform to Nazis. And this guy thought, look, it's so transparent. Look, they give the the straw. They don't give those, you know, uh, something horrible he said about the other guys. Uh, but they give the kind of strong GAA playing guy the line about no platforming. You see, it's so transparent. You see what they're up to. Oh, because the other guys aren't as like masculine as Connell is. So therefore their argument has less like weight. Exactly. And and that we're trying to, it's just an act of propaganda. They seem to find it hard to 
imagine that we might actually believe that, you know, and just yeah. be saying in the piece of work what you actually think. Um, but then underneath, you know, there was loads of like, oh, yeah, but look who directed it, you know, say no more. You know, it just goes there really quickly as well. Did you did you go to Trinity? I did. You did. Okay, that's why it's that's why it's so accurate. <laughs> In some of the bad parts of Trinity. Oh, uh, the debating society was my sort of like the horror, you know? Yeah. And just the kind of the, the, the that like baby parliamentarian sort of point of order stuff. No, it's incredible. I mean I I went to U C D and the, the people there are pretty bad, but Trinity takes it a whole nother level. I mean, now, I mean, I did know some people who kind of drifted in and out. I did the maiden debate in my very first year and I thought, oh, that's the end of it. I, I, I did a new CD as well. Like, and then you just <laughs> realize this is not my thing. Like, you know, I also find it really hard. And I could never be a lawyer because I find it really hard to argue things that I don't agree with. I mean, uh-huh. I'm not good at arguing the other side of the motion. It's just I don't find that exciting. I, and and um, one thing I was wondering about in terms of the, the sex scenes, obviously, is that so it's it's portraying this thing of consent, but also it struck me that like for you know relatively young actors, um, these are real people; they're not just characters. Um, there probably are like issues there that need to be teased out in terms of their comfortableness with their like. I, I read an in- interesting interview talking about how young actors are like you know put into kind of raunchy sex scenes or whatever, like and kind of sell themselves, and that's what you do at that age, and what can you do, you know? Like there's such a you know there's a history of. Once you do, when you're doing the scene, scenes like that, you just have to be aware of the history of how that's been done. And quite often in the past, people would like actually sometimes, you know, really exploitative, but sometimes just a kind of terrible uh, awkwardness around it, which would let lead directors to go, look, I, I don't want to tell you what to do. So you guys just, you know, well, the problem with that is um you're taking out the dimension of character and drama. If it's just a sex scene, like the whole point of the sex scenes in normal people is that they're not some other part. Some It's not like a car chase where different rules yeah. apply and you change your style. I mean, yeah, it's okay. part of the story of their relationship. And it's also character is deeply important in it. So you can't just step away as a director and go, so now, now pretend to have sex. You have to talk about those scenes in a way which gives the actors a sense of why you're doing it. Because it's amazing how that's kind of that dignifies the the work in a way. Because what you all do is you all sit around and go, "This is what we did." With a wonderful woman called Ita O'Brien, who specialises in like providing a sort of it sounds wanky, but it's not at all suggesting is creating a space within which you can do this stuff really safely and with kind of creative uh, sense of 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 creative cooperation with everybody. And you sit down and you say, well, what images do we want to create? And we looked at paintings. We looked at photography, like Nan Golden photography. We looked at, we talked about what we're trying to do. And then everybody's going, well, okay, well, this would be interesting. And then you go, as a group of professionals, you go, well, how do we construct that image in a way where you guys feel um, safe and where, where like it might look right, but isn't what you think it is kind of stuff. And then it's just practical stuff about, okay, well, I'll put my arm here and that takes my weight. And Isha has like every variety of pad and covering. And so if you're, if you're looking at them here, then everything's covered below. If you're, you know what I mean? And it's only in the big wide shots where there's, and and for us, those big wide shots were always about afterwards. Mm -hmm. They were always about the bodies, Mm -hmm. which is a bit like what, you know, if you go into an art gallery Mm -hmm. and that's what amazed me about the response, you know, and this one has largely been very positive, but I do enjoy yeah. focusing on the... The Joe Duffy's and so on. The Joe Duffy's, yeah. So it's like where you see that... It, I always feel like that the voices on that were like, I don't know, you send out a... You send the thing out for Voyager with recordings yeah. of what humanity sounded like a thousand years before, if it's ever, you know, intercepted by an alien. Um, but like people have stand outside the National Gallery and complain about the fact that there are penises in some of the pictures. Yeah, like yeah. it's just a body it's just a human body the most important thing for me is the are the actors mm-hmm. um you know because uh and, and i think we it was a very very i found that really interesting i think they did too and i think everything that they've said since would 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 support the fact that they felt very safe very comfortable and we also cast them ever so we cast their they're in their early 20s so because the story goes from 18 to 22 and we we just i mean we wanted them to be in the middle of that so i would find it hard to do somebody who was just 18 yeah yeah i don't know it just felt like it was probably better to be a little bit 
err on the, the the older side slightly. It's it's a kind of crazy Sorry. situation to be in. Yeah. Yeah. But we minimal crew and, and we ended up having a really good laugh. I mean, uh-huh. I can imagine that. Yeah. Okay. The thing I love best about it was, um, you know, does everybody works on a, in a, this mad unit on a film set. And so you bring the electricians would come, would normally be standing in the set working on things, you know, adjusting lights and things like that. And, but on a closed set, when you're doing a sex scene, everybody that doesn't absolutely have to be there is outside. But what you will do every so often is you'll call in somebody to, to, to like, cause a light goes or whatever. Right. So you call in, you call in the sparks and you cover the actors. Now, normally the sparks are just, it's, it's banter all the time. Right. But on those scenes, they walk in and go, yes. um, What would you like me to do? Yes, of course. I would be delighted to do that. There's this profound, like totally false professionalism, which is brilliant. Which is completely at odds with the normal kind of thing. Okay. Totally at odds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And like in terms of making a show like normal people, I presume there's a whole bunch of stuff in the background before you even get to make it in terms of getting funding and things like that. Like obviously it, this was, I mean, you tell me the details, but it was shown first and foremost on BBC and then was kind of then on RTE as a BBC show. Like, how, how does that work? What? Why didn't RTE snap it up? I mean, I mean, I would love to be in a world. I would love to be in a world where RTE could could snap it up. Um, so the, the the reality of it is, so I work really closely with Ed Garnin, uh Element Pictures. We've known each other since we were fifteen. Um, and uh, and have sort of come up together and started making things in college together. And so so when the book came out, we read it and before it was published and really I loved it, Ed loved it and wanted to do it. And um, then the question is, how do you get the rights? Because it was very competitive because her first book had been loved. And so lots of big people were trying to get it. But I think, we, you know, being Irish and having that background and, and all that was was an advantage. And, and who who decides who get it? Does she decide or her publisher? She decides with her. She she'd have a, an agent that would help her. But yeah, she decides, which is really good. Okay. okay. Whereas filmmakers don't retain the rights in anything like the same way as authors or music, musicians do. It's a big. Okay. It's an issue though. Okay. Once it's made, it's it's not yours. It's the company's or whatever. Yeah. Okay. You can, but it's hard, really hard to retain any any okay. rights or ownership. Okay. So she she then says, "Yes, I'm happy to go with Lenny." And and, yeah. and that was because see, we went to the BBC because. Like, to be honest, we wouldn't go to RT because we just know that they wouldn't have the, couldn't afford it. That's it. Okay. And, and, and I mean, it's a terrible situation because, like, there, we could really do an awful lot here. I mean, we're in, we're in a world now where it doesn't matter where the stories are coming from. It's much more like, in the, you know, before you'd make your programs for your audience and the BBC would make it for us. But now, like, it's really opened up. So people, people in, you know, uh, there was, if a show came from Eastern Europe that was interesting, people would watch it, and that's yeah. great, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, this this is a huge hit in America, isn't it? Like, it's massive. Yeah, it's actually, one. everywhere sure. it seems, you know. Yeah. Okay. And and so we went to the BBC and said, uh, "What do you think?" And they said, "Yeah," we, and they were able to say um, because we've really good relationships with a few of the people there. Yes, if you get the rights, we'll greenlight the show, which is kind of unheard of in that you normally have to go through this long process of writing spec scripts and. Okay. And and actually, it was just wonderful that they were prepared to go. We yeah, we trust you, and we love this material. And we went to Sally. She liked my films. Um, this was a very compelling thing to say. Look, if if you go with us, this will happen. Mm-hmm. We have BBC lined up. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So that's what we did. And then RT would have bought it to to screen. I mean, I feel for them. Like I've I've had massive fights with RT, and I've huge issues with them. And um, the you know. Uh, you, there's just there's such a kind of I don't know though, and but they are at fundament fundamentally they are absolutely crippled by lack of funding. I mean, and so even if they wanted to do good stuff, and there are people in there who really do want to do good stuff, mm-hmm. they can't. So mm-hmm. you know, but we did have film board. I think we have uh, Screen Ireland support, and Screen Ireland have now sort of they changed their name because they're they're kind of across film and television. Okay. Um, and those two worlds have really meshed together recently, so it's very hard to just be one or the other. Yeah, and I mean, in the context of the coronavirus, obviously, on the one hand, like you're saying, with people watching TV, just on a very simple level, the importance of arts has come clear to people that, like, imagine if we didn't have 
you know, normal people to watch and arts to watch and whatever, like everything that you do when you walk into your, your, wherever you live is, is connected with so much of it is connected with the arts. Yeah. Um, so, so the importance of it to people's lives, I think has become clearer. Um, but on the other hand, the issue you're raising, which is a pre-existing issue about funding for the arts in all its kind of facets from RTE, you know, right down, right down to, to fine art and performance, everything. Yes. But now in a way, those two things, like the gulf is even greater. So the arts are even more important, but the funding is like completely inadequate because I mean, arts were the first thing to shut down and they'd be basically the last thing to start up again. Exactly. And when, when um, the Taoiseach was asked about it recently, he said, oh, well, they can avail of the same supports that everybody else can. And it's a, it's a really disingenuous way of talking because of course that just makes you go, yes, why, you know, it's another industry. There are supports out there, but every, every sector is different. And yeah. there is something particularly hard hit because of, as you said, it's the last it, performance is the last performance art, particularly cinemas, particularly all of that and film sets, how you even do that. Mm -hmm. Which means that it's a long time down the production line before they come back onto it. Yeah. But, but even, even more like say, so I, I've been on, excuse me, on and off involved with the IFI and the IFI gets, uh, you know, unlike most um, national film institutes, which would be largely state funded in the rest of Europe, okay. um, the IFI is, I think, 75% uh, of the money the IFI has is generated by ticket sales, cafe and bar and other activities. Right. Okay. So you can imagine what that looks like now. Um, and the thing about it is you could like if it's an, like there are. If a restaurant had to close, you can imagine that that restaurant can open again or another one can open again rel relatively easily. But the arts is this mad ecosystem where if it starts to fall apart in one area, it becomes incredibly difficult to bring it all back. It's taken us like 20 years to build up a film industry here. And it, it doesn't, you can't switch it off and on again. You, you just yeah. can't do that. So yeah, there is this kind of, question about the arts where I think we're also way behind the rest of Europe in the level at which we fund artists and arts workers and arts institutions. And so the way I've described it recently is the arts of all the industries, you know, they say that COVID is dangerous to certain groups of people who have pre-existing conditions, yeah. you know, and those people need to be protected uh, more so than younger and healthier people. Well, the arts has a pre-existing condition in, in this yeah. culture, which is that yeah. it's been underfunded and neglected for a long time. And um, and it's also not like, I mean, I, it's so difficult because you're forced every time this comes up, you're forced to make, to write another document which says, why are the arts important? Mm -hmm. Which seems like, a you know, we don't, I wish we didn't have to have that discussion. Maybe Maybe that's the thing that this phase has done. It's kind of at least answered that question in the minds of people more generally, and hopefully it makes it easier to make the argument about funding. I mean, there, there are like quite a lot of people now campaigning on this issue. Um, so I was on a Zoom call yesterday with the National Campaign for the Arts. Um, it was good. I mean, we, we got something you can see, like I, email campaigns aren't the most you know impactful campaigns in the world, but it is interesting. You do see what issues are generating support. And whenever we had that debate in the doll, there was a good number of emails coming in and stuff. So exactly illustrating that awareness. Do you, do you see any sign that this stuff is having an impact? I mean, obviously, I think Art has felt this 500,000 euro from the government was just an insult to people. It's like, oh, there's 500,000. That's a lot of money. Yeah, go and go and apply for it. But by the way, if you're an informal art worker, you're not going to be able to get the pandemic unemployment payment, uh, et cetera, totally. et cetera. And, 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 um, and actually, arts organizations can't apply for all sorts of um, business development things that are available in other areas. So it's, it, you know, there's lots of discrepancies like that. Oh, that was so insulting. And the idea that, you know, for three grand, you can put something on Facebook to entertain us, you know? like people were just kind of horrified. If you look at what's going on in other countries where there's some serious support being put out there. And yeah, so I think I'm involved in an advisory panel for the Arts Council. Hopefully we'll get, we'll put a pretty forceful thing in. But I think there's a kind of confusion as well around, um, I think the government tend to look at arts funding as either a, a sort of necessary evil to be minimized or as a photo opportunity. So if you yeah. look at like, they love celebrations, they love big headline events where they can 
go and get their pictures taken. Um, and that, whereas really what's necessary is just a rational way of putting the money where it's most needed at the moment to help the arts survive. Simp- like, that's it. And if we overemphasize the kind of um, instrumental kind of, you know, mm-hmm. version of this, uh, and I think there are different approaches to it internally, and we hopefully we'll see what what wins out. But I, yeah. I sort of I sort of feel like um, I don't think actually. I mean, I, I I hate to be pessimistic, but I they may be embarrassed or pushed into some class of remedial kind of just about you know put another drip on the IV stand kind of approach. But I don't think there is any understanding in the two main parties. They, there isn't. They, they, they're not. I don't know. They're. It just sounds like it, for them, it's just a kind. Of, it's not. It's never been a priority, and they've never given it a, a great minister. They've never given it. They've split the department. The way RT is in one department, and the arts are in another, is crazy. Everything about it is 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 sort of not serious. And when you say instrumentalist kind of approach, you you mean people who feel the need to make like a kind of, you know euros and cents business case this is exactly what as opposed to a public good argument the same around education like there are two two versions of it one is the euros and cents case and actually the the annoying thing is the euros and cents case actually works as well so like it's not even you're not asking for a net ultimately it's not even a net contribution probably it breaks even you know in terms of arts funding what comes back but that shouldn't really matter um any more than health should be profitable. Yeah, we don't have to accept that these things have to be profitable. Like exactly, like you know. Like, yeah, like it's you know, that, 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 model. that metric is so mad. I can't ever yeah. get over it. Um, but uh, but the other way in which it becomes instrumentalized, I think, is just like um, the idea that the arts are here to cheer us up or give uh, us a great okay. day out. Like around the nineteen sixteen celebrations and things like that. It was very. It was very or very PR driven, and it and it was very much like uh, there was so much money spent on consultancy and so much money spent on on all of that stuff, and and I feel like there's a kind of national coming together possibility of that becoming a discussion about why the arts are important because they give us hope or something. Now I know that like this is a very esoteric yeah. argument. No, yeah, I hear you. It could be could because your films don't cheer people up as well. Yeah, exactly. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> the right to make non-cheery films. Yeah, like we live in a pretty ma- messy world and and yeah. so I, I sort of reserve the right for other artists even more so than me to be miserable and critical and difficult and those things yeah. have to be considered important. But look, I get it as well. This at the moment, the point is how do we best speak to government to save people's work and livelihoods and the and the and the 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 whole infrastructure of the arts in this country. Like so, whatever is necessary, we we sort of have to do it. Um, maybe maybe just a final question is obviously you are like on these issues, you're very outspoken, um, but also on broader political issues like on repeal, etc. You're an active campaigner. Um, does that affect? Your work. I mean, does it does it impede you in any way? Is there a price to be paid uh, for it, or um, uh... no? Not so far. Um, it's interesting because I don't live in the states, and I live in Ireland, and and I I, I make forays into that world, and have have I, you know yeah. know Hollywood, and have done stuff okay. there. Uh, I think these days, probably less than before, even over there, there are people I know who are very successful, who are very outspoken as well. Um, the probably, um, and, and I think success for like, success is a great one for people to forgive, like all sorts of stuff. So the stuff I've done has done well. And in a way, uh, I, it's difficult for me because I'm not naturally combative with other human beings. So if I have to meet the minister or something like that, I, 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 I'm, I'll tell her, I, I would say exactly what I feel about stuff. Mm-hmm. But I find I would find it really hard to be sort of, I, yeah, it's really hard to describe this. It's just a personal style thing. So I tend to be pretty nice to people and maybe that also helps. Or, but I don't know whether that's my own weakness or whether it's a strength. Mm-hmm. There are some areas where you can get into into still taboo areas. For example, criticism of Israel in America is yeah, okay. still one of those things. And I have been critical. Um, it's never, I haven't had it picked up. I haven't had anybody 
you know, say boycott Lenny Abrahamson. Uh-huh. But they, but they could, is what you're saying? Yeah, they probably could. And and um, I mean, I, like my position on it is is also, and I I think one of the reasons why I haven't spoken more about it is I know I need to I know I need to learn and read more before I can. There's nothing worse than going on a taking a strong position and not being able to defend it. But also, I'm I, you know I'm also aware of the fact that if I've done something, um with a bunch of people and everybody has put their heart and soul into it. I don't want in the, in the promotional phase of that, there is a kind of great egotism in pivoting to something which, you know, will take all the headlines and it feels like that's yeah. quite a, so, so it's a, I'm not primarily an actively sort of out political person, but I do engage and I do. And also, and this is something I'd love to talk to you about some other time. I've had such a kind of in and out relationship with the with specific political positions, you know, um, and I've thought a lot about, um, you know, where I am on the spectrum, and I'm not completely secure in the position in a position yet. So that makes me okay. less keen to to sort of mouth off, but but it, but I know where my instincts are, and they're always sort of pretty strongly and. And, and substantially left. Well, actually, that 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 begs just a, a minor question at the end, um, which is, um, there's some stuff in the book, of course, which didn't make it into the the show. They talk about communism. They talk about capitalism. Exactly. I'm talking about the Communist Manifesto. I'm talking about Declan Bree. Yeah. Why don't they? Why don't they make it? The, the reason was it was in, and I never. It always felt fake in their mouths when they were saying. Okay. It. Okay forced kind of when when they're talking about it in the novel somebody can report we talked about the communist manifesto and you go okay uh-huh. you see that if they if suddenly some somebody just says yeah it's probably something to do with capitalism and they walk on in their lovely clothes um uh-huh. being in uh-huh. love uh-huh. it felt to me like it would oddly diminish the it would just yeah. feel like a false note it's like a land and freedom scene just kind of inserted in the middle so that was that was it it wasn't like okay. fear of 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 sort of taking, you know, having characters that take a position. I also feel that her characters, they're very young. And so they're, they're ta- I mean, somebody would say, yeah, I'm probably a communist. And I'm thinking, well, are you a member of an organization? Um, what are you doing? Um, in which case, the only way I can understand it, with affection, is as a sort of naive statement of, of, of a kind of feeling. But like, I think to be, to seriously claim something like that, you've really got to be, actively doing something and so it feels like um yeah it just felt like something i would love to make something about a person who really actively takes on i mean you know i think there are huge costs at a personal level to adopting positions which are deeply unpopular to the mainstream and to the I mean, not deep necessarily to the mainstream people but to the main, mainstream media to the yep. the kind of power in a society, there are huge consequences. And if you do that as your, if that's your job, that's one thing because, be, but it, but it, but people who have the courage to do that at the expense of um, being ridiculed or being marginalized or worse in societies where there's a real danger, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with Trump's potential, to, you know, categorization yeah. of Antifa as, as a terrorist organization, but it does, suggest that there may be massive personal costs mm-hmm. and there are so few people who have the courage to do that and they are it's a really fascinating study of of personal conviction and what mm-hmm. what that means and i think those things are really important whereas sally's characters are and i think she would agree with this they're sort of they're they tend to be relatively um sent you know central culturally you know they're, they're safe enough culturally and they're, they're, they're young and they're playing with those thoughts. And I think I think that works in the book. But if I was to do it to the character on the screen, I think everybody would go, oh, my God, the naive side. Okay. Interesting. OK, no, that, that's convincing. You convinced me. Good. Because um, I, I think I think the, the, the show is really plenty political. I think it's it's really excellent. Thank you. Um, thanks a million, Lenny, uh, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, I really enjoyed that, Paul. And thanks for all the... The recent work on behalf of the arts, much appreciated, and generally the 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 push in the direction of civilization. And good luck with um. Is it is the thing the the show you're mentioning the film you're mentioning that's a film you're writing? Uh, I've been writing it with with uh, somebody else actually. Yeah, um, but I think it may need to it may need to wait because um I don't think anybody's going to be traveling much or yeah. Okay. I also don't know what's going to happen in the states. 
um, you know, who knows? And but but there are other things. I'm working with Marco Halloran again, who I did Garage and Adam and Paul with, okay. um, on a on something set in the '80s in the west of Ireland. It's an interesting phase in Irish history. Um, around 1981 time of the hunger strikes so so that, that oh, yeah. that's interesting um and that's something that we might be able to do because it's here and it's yeah. it's a bit yeah, more manageable yeah. that's true you have to bear that stuff in mind thanks a minute lenny take care paul and uh, all the best okay so that was paul murphy td uh, speaking with lenny abramson director of normal people um, what did you make of the, the interview, lads? I think we got a bit of like insider scoop there, didn't we? When he said the possible coming back to the story of Marianne and Connell in five or ten years. That's like a headline we can put put out a press release left inside, heard it first. <laughs> we'll, we'll get on expose on, on 3E or whatever now, you know? Expose. Oh, God, I remember that show. Is that still going? I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, Who cares? Um, yeah, I, that'd be class though. Like I would, like I, I was confused because I don't know if you saw, there was lots of speculation that, oh, maybe there'll be a second season. And I was looking at it and I was going, there isn't a second book. Like who the heck are these people uh, thinking that there'll be a second season? But that idea of coming back in 10 years time and seeing how it's all going sounds pretty cool to me. Yeah, because I find like when TV shows or movies are adapted from books, they often do like the second sequel that when there isn't a book to base it on. And I feel like it just loses it. But I like that idea of like maybe doing it when they're like in their 30s, you know, when maybe the people who are watching it now have grown up as well and, you know, can relate to them even more when they're older. I think that sounds cool. So so what, what was the what jumped out at the what, what was the most interesting part of that interview for, 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 for you? Yeah, like I thought I thought like all the points you were making were like very interesting. I thought the discussion they were having about um, masculinity and sex education and like consent and all of that is like very interesting and I think like that's the main thing that people are taking from normal people like we've seen you know people going crazy at the full frontal nudity and um stuff like that but I think like the majority of people are looking at it as like as Paul was saying like that idea of like holding it up to a gold standard of what consent should look like amongst young people and um yeah and how it's not being taught like that currently I didn't get any sex education in my school. I think I got something when I was like in fifth class. Um, but like, it was like, just like puberty as a thing. Uh, um, the notion of like, and even in college and secondary school, like nothing, the notion of like, the notion of consent was not taught anywhere. Uh, and I'm sure, like I, I'm sure there's people that had even worse sex ed that had like a chord going in with the sellotape telling you that if you have sex you're 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 diminishing your value you know and um, so for a lot of people that's probably the best sex education they're going to get like but i think it also like shows that culture and tv and movies really inform uh young people i guess particularly like how we relate to sexuality or relationships uh what's socially acceptable what's not cool or whatever um, and that's really good about this show is that um, it does like show two, like particularly Connell is like portrayed as a really normal guy and um, Marianne like less so, she's a bit more kooky or whatever. Um, but showing their interaction and their like consensual relationship, the discussions they have is like, um, it's pretty useful, like you know, because of all the reasons that you say, like, look, this just doesn't exist. No formal education really exists around this in school unless it's like really reactionary. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty good. And I thought one of the things that they talked about in the interview, that the point that Lenny made about how, uh, look, Connell is a very relatable character. It's not like um, it's not like just a villain. I thought that was quite good. Like, I, I, I definitely related that, that it showed how like people are flawed everybody does shit that like later they go oh shit what did i do uh, um or later they realize that like oh that word that you used to use when you were a young person actually it's quite offensive you know what i mean uh, um and you learn that and it's not about like you're a prick <laughs> or, or like you're a bad person it's like actually you're just learning uh, um and that i think it the show shows that quite well in that connell you see he's flawed but you also see like he's trying to be good and it's like it's like he's reflecting problems in society uh, uh, um as well you know exactly i think it's like 
like obviously first of all that makes a good character you know like in terms of like what Lenny was saying you can't have someone who's like just evil because that just doesn't people don't that doesn't compute with people because you know you rarely see people who are like monsters like he was saying um but like secondly it like you're saying it reflects something greater and I think it's like everyone in living under capitalism like has learned bad behavior you know and we're taught from a young age about things that you know aren't healthy or aren't good and we need to unlearn a lot of stuff um and I think like that's what normal people portray is that no one's like the perfect leftist or no one kind of you know knows exactly what they're talking about from the beginning like people have to kind of like make their way along the road but in a like the same way that like they were talking about it in the interview he doesn't portray this in a way that's like really obvious it's like it's running parallel to our lives you know and we have our lives and we have our relationships and you know the small things that we worry about from day to day but like overarching all of that is kind of this like political battle that we're almost like that idea of like the personal and the political being like interconnected and yeah I think like normal people portray that in like really good way well or April what do you make it at like how politics is dealt with in the show that discussion that they had about how it's he wanted it to reflect the reality of society but like not hit you over the head with like uh, um a, a, a political agenda you know yeah like I think online I've seen some people give out about oh it's the politics are a little bit uh taken out of the show and it's just depoliticized a little bit to make it more appealing um to BBC or whatever and I don't really agree I mean obviously I, I don't know why what the reasoning was to take out some of the decisions like he said that he recorded some stuff and uh, it just didn't really flow and that sounds plausible to me because in order to like drive on the narrative or the plot or the understand like the dynamics between them I don't think some of the obvious political references that are in the books like really do that like um, when Connell was when they were discussing uh, the Communist Manifesto or they were talking about they were in the ghost estate and they were talking about like you know why is this ghost estate here uh, like it's really interesting and it's like reflective of the fact that the politicization that's happening um, amongst young people in particular but I can totally see how that's like superfluous to the plot you know yeah I can see the way as well like some people while they you know are learning and they're interested in left ideas to watch a tv show and kind of like get these like real you know heavy winks at things like it kind of makes you roll your eyes a little bit and I can I can understand like when I read the book I didn't feel like that at all because I was like it was new and I was like whoa she just said the communist manifesto in a like young adults book that's like amazing um because obviously like a lot of fiction aimed at young adults like doesn't deal with politics in any way shape or form you know it kind of um nearly pretends like it doesn't exist so that like when I read the book I was like that's class but like I think his answer like made sense to me in terms of yeah like to see it in a tv show like that it might make you kind of just go oh jesus like we get it (laughs) we understand what you're trying to do you don't have to like explicitly tell us you want to make us read the communist manifesto you know what I mean yeah and and like um I think I watched an interview with Sally Rooney where she talks about like because she self-describes as a Marxist and she's talking about like what it's like to try to write fiction as a Marxist and she makes the point that like what she tries to do is to write about how the uh, class and social structures and misogyny and all of that things how that impacts on individuals lives you know um, and their romantic relationships and their just their mental health or whatever. So it's not like she doesn't tell stories about the the structure uh, of society, but she tells stories about like she doesn't tell stories about like strikes and like political revolutions or whatever. She tells stories about like people's personal lives, but but she highlights um, how our personal lives are shaped and sculpted by all of this stuff. And I think I think in that sense, that's her strength. That's what she's trying to do. And I think the TV show is true to, to that, you know. Well, I think like a lot of people get introduced to politics 
like through personal avenues you know like it's not like someone will just automatically like start a strike <laughs> like that's their introduction to left-wing politics you know it's, it's usually through um a friend telling you about a tough situation they're in or you being in that tough situation yourself or whatever it is it's usually like through your own personal life that you become politicized you know so i guess like in that way like i think there's there's room for both though as well you know like if you want to sit down and watch a film about revolution and you know it has like jam-packed full of theory and i like that's great and there should be those films as well but it's just like i think i think the way that it's done in normal people is more effective in certain ways especially those who like wouldn't consider themselves as political people you know and i like i don't think that really exists in today's society like everything you do is political like that same way like yeah but i think normal people works aimed at those who wouldn't consider themselves like politically minded so like for me the most powerful thing about the show is not that it like it's it's not that it doesn't give you the hard sell as you're saying, but it's like it just it 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 doesn't talk explicitly about like capitalism that much or class even or class struggle or whatever. But it 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 it's basically that it acknowledges the existence of class. You know, it it doesn't ignore it, and it it doesn't ignore the existence of misogyny and how that shapes our lives. It doesn't ignore mental health and how that affects us. Um. And so much of like mainstream popular stuff, uh, media does just ignore uh, um, all of these realities and like paints this picture that we all are all middle class getting on brilliantly and there's no, you know, uh, um, and the only drama is like, will they, won't they, you know, this has a will they, won't they, but it's also shaped by all these bigger things, you know, um, but, but, but April, what was the like, what were the highlights to you politically? Like, what what were the what examples from the show for people that haven't necessarily watched it or didn't watch it but didn't even think about the politics of it? Like, where do you think you can see the politics coming out in the uh, in the show? I think, um, like the juxtaposition between like some of the simple points, like one of the most tragic moments of the the book and the show for me was that point where. Um, I think they were together in college and then Connell didn't have, he lost a job or he didn't have enough money to stay up during the summer. And he raised it with Marianne, but he was kind of embarrassed. He knew that she didn't really, this wasn't an issue for her. Like she just had a place in Dublin that she could stay. So it was just this awkward moment of miscommunication where she was really insecure because she didn't pick up on the fact that oh he might be asking this or she felt like he was leaving her um and he felt that oh I I can't ask it was just this like really awkward misunderstanding and then they ended up like breaking up uh and I just thought that was really realistic um like this uh, combination of lack of confidence that comes with um like of just observing people around you having a lot of stuff like I noticed like for me definitely um when I went to college in Dublin and like I at first when I went to college in Dublin you, I you went to Trinity and I went to I went to Trinity as well and, <laughs> <laughs> no no but I thought that people in Trinity was like oh this must be Dublin people you know like they have so much money they are so they possess so much of this like you know quote-unquote cultural capital um, and I, you know, it's really intimidating because uh, you're on the back foot a lot. Um, but then as you like, you broaden your horizons and you meet other people as you get older, you realise actually it, there's a, it's a class point. It's not a Dublin v country point. Um, so I, I thought that was, it just kind of like displayed the kind of the emotions that, that flow from uh that sort of situation yeah I was was just gonna say on that um like I think more and more that's becoming an aspect of like young people today's lives so like not only do you have to like handle a relationship for the first time you know and like find out what that's like and like learn how to communicate properly and respect the other person all of those things that come with like your first proper relationship 
but you also have to navigate around the issues of class, the issues of like not being able to pay rent, the issue of getting a job while also being in college, like all these other stresses and strains that are put on a relationship apart from just like the actual relationship itself, you know? And I think that's why like this is so relatable for young people today because yes, it is a story of love and like, will they, won't they, like you were saying, but it's like so much more than that. It's a story of how do we navigate the world around us? And like, yeah, like that's like, I think Sally Rooney has been described as, you know, the voice of her generation and stuff like that. And And like, I think that's one of the reasons as well that like, like I like films like that are the more political Ken Loach, Wind that Shakes the Barley or Land and Freedom, these films about revolutions and all that, that hit you over the head with politics. They have big debate scenes. I like that, but like, that isn't the life. Sally Rooney hasn't experienced that, you know? Um, so if she tried to write about like organizing a group of workers in a factory that organized and went on strike, it probably wouldn't be as good because she hasn't directly experienced that, you know? Um, that's not what this generation's understanding of class is yet. We haven't yet seen the working class as a force that can really change society as a power. Um, we tend to see class mainly just as like a form of discrimination or the fact that you were saying you can't pay rent. We see it that way, you know, uh, so far. Uh, um, but I do think it's interesting that like Sally Rooney has been described as a voice of a generation. Blind Boy was previously described as the voice of a generation that, that all of these people who are the voice of the millennial generation are all like inspired by socialists and Marxist ideas. You know, it's, it's a sign of the, the times we're in, you know, um, maybe to move on, maybe the, what do people think of the, the bit of discussion about arts and the, the funding for the arts and the crisis in the arts funding? Um, yeah, I thought it was like, it's a very important conversation to be having, um, especially at the moment. I think that's what, the campaigns that are fighting for more funding for the arts are kind of stressing. I've seen a few articles where they're saying that, so firstly, like not only is COVID impacting the like income of artists, because obviously they can't apply for the emergency dole payment and they also like can't get gigs or can't do anything like that, you know? Um, but like, secondly, it is that point that they were discussing in the interview about um, people are realizing how important the arts are and like we'd be lost without them and like what would like obviously you know we could do other things in lockdown but I know it would go a lot slower if I didn't have tv music podcasts like films all of it you know so um, I think yeah I don't know it, it's like putting into perspective if we continue to defund the arts again and again and again like we're going to be in a sorry state of affairs down the shortly down the line you know and I also like really liked his point about how the government is willing to like fund these like flashy projects or these like you know spend money on a centenary or a um trying to get like the city of culture or whatever a good day out for family is there yeah yeah something that they can like take a lot of photos on and April I live in Limerick and Jesse's from Galway, so let's not discuss city of culture. We, may... <laughs> <laughs> we were wrong. <laughs> you, you can have it. <laughs> well, you didn't get much out of twenty twenty. Sorry. Well, we didn't. We didn't get much out of it. I don't think it was much good plan. But that's another discussion. <laughs> but insofar as like they don't invest in like, you know, building, like building spaces for people to. Um, like theatres for people to use like even like we're in reading groups and engage in political discussions it's just so hard even to find spaces to do that in town like unless you go to obviously nobody's going anywhere right now but before covid it was like unless you went to a bar or um got a room off a coffee shop and they that they were willing to give to you it's, there's just no real space for for that you know I think that's really true yeah but maybe even just to slightly talk on that not to go too deep into it but like the idea that it's a lot easier to get funding for something that's like uncontroversial and you know it's going to be backed by or she uh everyone who's like you know in charge of the funding and kind of you know that's like if you go through the right avenues you know you can get that but like the idea so with Galway 2020 has been like there's been huge amount of money 
um, put into these like big projects and like regulated things or whatever. But at the same time, they've like uh, increased the rules about busking in Galway, which is like the heart of Galway's art scene is people playing music on the streets, what people come to visit Galway for. Um, and then they like slash the chances of like more and more people getting involved in busking, but while putting millions of euro into Galway 2020, you know, and this is like, like, I think it was what kind of Lenny was like getting at when in the interview, when he was saying the point about it's not just a good day out for the family always like obviously there's a place for that within the arts and it's like necessary but it's not even it's not even like it's not even about a good day out for the family these the the council officials and the people responsible for these city cultures all they're thinking about is culture as something you can put on a tourist brochure something you can put in an ad to get tourists in it's if it happens to be enjoyable for the people that live in the city that's like collateral benefits you know what i mean it's like we didn't expect that but oh grand like you know and you saw literally with lim with the when limerick was city of culture in 2014 the national city of culture um and there was loads of controversy over it but uh, um with like cronyism and all that sort of stuff but but one of the things that really pissed me off about it is that they they came out and they said that, oh, this is a great chance for Limerick to rebrand, you know? And they saw the whole thing as just like a big marketing, like not celebrating Limerick culture. And like Limerick culture is varied. It includes horse riding. It includes uh, rap music. It includes like uh, rubber bandits and, you know, uh, 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 loads of stuff as well. Uh, it also includes some opera and, uh, and you know, it has a, a it's a rich and varied culture. But it, they weren't trying to celebrate Limerick culture. They were just trying to, how can we, like, make Limerick seem like this lovely uh, middle-class uh, city for tourists, you know? Totally. And that's why, like, like art is, like, so important for uh, people on the left to express, you know, the like anger of people or you know a certain message and it's it's been like such an important tool for activists like throughout history um and to compact art into a box that needs funding um you know a lot of things aren't going to get it and a lot of things that don't suit the message won't get the funding as well and like if there was more money there maybe they would maybe there would be more opportunity for um kind of more I don't know what you'd call it, like activist art or whatever it is to get funded. Um, that isn't just like this kind of shiny, like you're saying, packaged up for tourist type art. Yeah, I like the way he said as well that um, we also want to make art that's serious and upsetting and um, like sorrowful as well. That's important to make too. Definitely. And it's like this scheme. So like in terms of like obviously the arts are in serious trouble. Individual artists are in trouble but also like venues and all like uh, are going to be in trouble uh, um and the, the the only all the government have announced is 500 grand which is like like it's grand for one individual or like you know it's probably like td salary for two uh for our, our t-shirt salary for two years or whatever but like uh, um it's nothing in terms of actually funding the arts uh, it, it equates to like 10 cents per person whereas in the uk which isn't like phenomenal at this stuff, but like they've they've announced thirty times that per person, you know, uh, um, and it is just this like it highlights that like th the government will give loads of platitudes about how valuable the arts are, blah blah blah, but at the end of the day, it's it's not profitable. These people think in terms of profit. That's how capitalism works. It's it's it's, it's all about can you make a profit from it, and like ninety percent of arts shows, ninety percent of exhibits, and gigs and all that like are not profitable you know if you're paying people decent wages anyway they're not profitable you know yeah and like the answer that these kind of establishment politicians have is okay well then like up the price of the tickets so that it will be profitable and then it means it just cuts it off from a huge chunk of society so that like yeah maybe great art will be getting made more but like if no one can afford to go see it then what's the point you know yeah unless you have just like a return to like the medieval times when art is just made just for the the only market for art was like super rich lords and like art was just made for those and that's what they'd like it's just like make oh make me art 500 euros a ticket to the ballet kind of stuff uh, um but like accessible gigs that people can afford or free art spaces or galleries and stuff like that are like starved of funding you know 
Um, and I think it, it art will not be valued because it's not a commodity. Like like uh, it, it's not a profit making enterprise like capital, which is what all capitalism wants. You know. Yeah, it's expression at the most basic level, and surely that needs as much funding as possible. So will will we leave it there? So as they say in the soccer, um, I think that's enough for for this week. Um, so I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Um, make sure if you are enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend. Uh, um, talk to people about it on Facebook uh, and help uh, get the word out about this. We're relying on ordinary people to spread the word about this podcast. Um, thanks for listening and thanks again uh, to Turnstones for the music. Uh, um, if you're starting to Bye. 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 Bye.